Today is a, a means of providing a, a framework for looking at the passage of Scripture that we're going to consider today. Uh, Hebrews 8 is the passage. Um, I'm going to uh, borrow from uh, a fellow that um, you may have heard of, you may not have. His name uh, is Bruxy Cavey. Um, he started... Um, and is the senior, or at least, yeah, he's the senior pastor, I guess, of um, a, a movement of churches known as the Meeting Place. And um, he wrote a book that was particularly challenging to me, being a bit of a legalist. Um, and it was entitled The End of Religion. If you've ever read it, uh, you'll know that it is... I think provocative and challenging um, because we live, <laughs> or I grew up believing that religion was good. <laughs> um, but Bruxy Cady um, contends in this book, and I think he does an excellent job of it, I'd recommend it to you, that Jesus Christ came to end religion. And uh, not to establish a new religion, but to end religion. And um, religion is a, is, a, is a concept that is really hard to define. This is the one definition I, I pulled up, um, which kind of demonstrates how hard it is to define religion. A cultural system of designated behaviors and practices. A cultural system of designated behaviors and practices morals, worldviews, texts, sanctified places, like this, prophecies, ethics, or organizations that relates humanity to the supernatural, transcendental, or spiritual elements. However, there's no scholarly consensus over precisely what constitutes a religion. I think this is the concept that Bruxy Cavey in his book the death of religion, or the end of religion, is, um, is suggesting Jesus came to put an end to that. A system. An institution, if you will. Set practices. Um, yeah, organizations. All of that. And he starts his, um, well, he doesn't start his book, but his book, um, in his book, he gives examples of how Jesus Christ dealt with the religious elite in uh, his day and age, and how he started to dismantle some of the religious uh, icons and practices of the day. And so we're going to take a look before we get to Hebrews 8, because once again I'm setting this up as a, a means of interpreting and understanding Hebrews 8. I'm going to take a look at uh, an example that Bruxy uses of Christ deconstructing religion. So we're going to go to his Jesus' first miracle. John chapter 2, on the first, or third day, sorry, 
On the third day, a wedding took place in Canaan, Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water. Sorry, I missed the part there. Nearby, thank you. <laughs> I skipped a piece. Got a head cold. It's my excuse. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw, now draw some out, of, out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn, drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. What does this then have to do with religion and the end of religion? Well, in order to do, uh, to understand that, we need to look at these jars, these six stone jars. Now, we think of mason jars. These are not mason jars. These are huge, like 20 to 30 gallons is a lot of stuff. And um, they were, in some instances, just sort of like molded out of stone. They're huge jars. And what they were, what they were, they were placed outside the house, and they were full of uh, clear, clean water. And the practice of the day was that you would wash yourself. And it wasn't so much, I mean, there's the hygiene concept to it, for sure, but there's also the idea of sort of ceremonially washing, you know, your, your impurities away. And we, and we know that from Scripture and from the Old Testament, God did uh, declare some things impure, which needed to be ceremonially cleaned. But by the time of Christ, uh, there was all kinds of stuff added to the law. Some of it um, was, was known as the teaching of the elders. And basically, it had become a situation where you didn't do anything before you sort of ceremonially cleaned yourself. We know this because Jesus got in trouble on this issue. His disciples were eating one day. And they hadn't ceremonially cleaned their hands before they ate. <laughs> and Jesus was taken a task by the Pharisees about this. They said, hey, you, what is this? You're not having your guys ceremonially clean their hands before they eat. You know, and, and Jesus said, you know... <laughs> You're getting so far away from the intent of the law 
with all of these teachings of the elders um, that uh, you're losing track. You're missing out. And so, basically, um, we have this situation where Jesus decides to use these jars that contained water for purification and he changed them into party juice. This is what Bruxy says. Through his first miracle, Jesus intentionally desecrates a religious icon. He purposely chooses these sacred jars to challenge the religious system by converting them from icons of personal purification into symbols of relational celebration. That's my Jesus. I like that. Jesus takes us from holy water to wedding wine, from legalism to life, from religion to relationship. Last week we read in Hebrews that Jesus Christ came as the high priest of a new covenant. And in Hebrews 8, we're going to see what is new about this covenant. But remember, we read last week about the old covenant. And these are the words that the Hebrew author of Hebrews writes. The former regulation, which is the law, is set aside because it is weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. That's Hebrews 7, 18-19. What an incredible way for Jesus to display the difference between the abuse of the old covenant and what it had become in the new covenant that he was introducing. By taking this religious icon, these jars with holy water in them, which was an exaggeration of a concept introduced by the law, but embellished by the elders, uh, the, the teaching of the elders, the traditions of the elders. Um, and using those icons to create wine, the best wine, to celebrate the union of a man and a woman in marriage. So let's just take a look then with that context in mind that revolutionary, kind of provocative idea that Jesus Christ brings the end of religion. Let's take a look at what the writer of Hebrews says about this new covenant that Jesus Christ is the high priest of. And so I'm going to read from chapter 8 of Hebrews. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Now, 
that's an introduction to what we're going to take a look at next week. So there's more to come on that. Because he talks a lot about the tabernacle uh, next. But every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it's necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were here on earth, he, he would not be a priest, for there's already priests who offer the gifts prescribed in the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, note that he doesn't say that he found fault with the old covenant. He found fault with the people and how they worked with the old covenant or behaved within the old covenant. But he says, he found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So here's the deal. This is the new covenant. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. <laughs> By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. I always feel when I'm talking about the superiority of the new covenant that we always put in a good word for the old covenant. <laughs> The reason I do this is because Jesus did this. Uh, <clears throat> he came to introduce a new covenant which was superior to the old covenant. But because anything that God makes is good, the old was not bad. Right? And we need to, we need to understand that. <clears throat> the law wasn't a mistake made kind of useless by faithless people who couldn't keep its rules. It was made exactly for the purpose of showing us God's standard of purity, God's standard of excellence, and our absolute inability, inability to be able to live up to those standards. And so, don't dismiss the Old Covenant. Jesus didn't dismiss He says, I didn't come to take one single word out of the Old Covenant. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. I am adding to the Old Covenant in the sense that it leads to me and the New Covenant that I am introducing. Yeah, it was weak and useless to use the words of the writer here 
from Hebrews. Because no one could keep its holy standards. But this was by design so that we could understand that we needed something or someone that could intercede on our behalf to make us right with God because we certainly couldn't be right with God by obeying the old covenant because we simply couldn't do it. The standard was too high. And so don't denigrate or <laughs> look down on the old covenant, but it's obsolete. <laughs> and and the, on the other hand, there are many Christians who for some reason feel that being holy is moving back to the old covenant. There are people in our community, people that you know and I know, who literally are starting to introduce the old covenant into their life. The practices of the old covenant because they think that makes them holy. Which is a fallacy. <laughs> which is a denigration of Christ on the cross. And we have to watch out for that. It sounds so holy to start to observe all of these old covenant things. It sounds so holy. Jesus made it obsolete. There's no need to go back to the old covenant. So in the case of this wedding miracle that Bruxy Cavey uh, puts a spin on so that we understand it. We can see in that miracle that the old covenant was susceptible to us manipulating it and distorting it to make it seem that we could actually, because it was based on behavior, that we could actually earn God's favor. And so, the teachings of the elders, the traditions of the elders, that turned, you know, these pots into holy icons, which led to Christ's criticism by the Pharisees because his disciples didn't ceremonially clean their hands before they ate. Um, shows that the Old Covenant was susceptible to being changed or translated into a religion. A religion in which there is a system there are behaviors, there are organizations, there are do's and don'ts. A system which we separate our heart from God's intent, and that is to have relationship with us. Alright, so we'll get off, get off the Old Testament, and let's move now to Hebrews 8, and just some quick comments on what makes the New Covenant unlike the Old Covenant and which, for all intents and purposes, brings an end to religion. To look at the gist of what the author is saying with regard to 
the incredible nature of the new covenant, you, look, you have to look at Hebrews 8, 10, and 11. This is the covenant I will establish. I'll put my laws in their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, and, and they will be my people. Four things that I want to point out that distinguishes the new from the old, which results in the death of or the end of our propensity towards establishing religions or a systems or a means of being right with God. The first one is this. The new covenant is an internal covenant, not an external. It establishes an internal relationship with God, not an external one. Look at those words. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. You know, because the Old Covenant established that, that professional clergy, the priests, the temptation was there to personally sort of disassociate from God and let the pros do that work for us. It's kind of like us, if we have a little extra cash laying around, we, by and large, most of us, I don't think, go online and start to manage any financial assets that we have on the stock market, we tend to get an investor to sort of take care of things like that because they're the pros. And that's kind of how it was with the old covenant. It became that, that the, 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 the people basically left maintaining good relations with God in the hands of the priests. There's things that we had to do or they had to do, but certainly it was the pros that took care of business. But the new covenant is internal. The law is on their minds, it's in their hearts. I mean, those are the two sources of anything that motivates us. And so if, if the covenant, the new covenant that Christ introduced is to change our lives and change our behaviors, then it needs to be on our hearts and it needs to be on our minds. And so the new covenant leads to an internal, not an external relationship with God. The next one is, it's an unconditional relationship, not a conditional relationship. Look what he says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. To me, that speaks of possession. That speaks of an unbroken ownership that isn't based on anything other than acceptance. I will be their God. They will be my people. It's not based on whether or not their behavior or your behavior adds up or measures up to God. It's an unconditional acceptance, an unconditional relationship, not subject to our behaviors. And so we read, I will be their God, they will be my people. God is saying that there would be an unbroken bond between us that isn't subject to a bunch of rules and regulations. Thirdly, and we spoke about this a little bit, but the new covenant would establish a personal relationship with God 
not a vicarious one. They'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. You know, the ancient Hebrews would never presume to have a relationship with God. You know, we, we now, like we, we talk, I think actually we're not all that genuine about this, but <laughs> we talk about this intimacy with Jesus and how close we are and what a friend and, you know, and, and this close, close relationship that we have with Jesus. When I say that we're disingenuous about that, I, I'm not so sure <laughs> that um, I think sometimes our words are not actually uh, maybe a bit of an exaggeration to what we actually experience in our lives. But, you know, there's this intimacy, there's this, this relationship we have. But the, the Hebrews back in the Old Covenant would not presume to have a relationship with God. God was holy. He was up there. He was away from everything. He was far beyond, you know, being bothered with us. And so that old co the Old Covenant was interpreted to say that God was out there and far beyond, whereas the New Covenant is saying, they will know me from the least of them. You don't have to be qualified. You don't have to have a degree in theology or, or, or be born into, the, into Aaron's uh, family line. The least of them will have a relationship with me. And so... The difference between the old and the new is that the new is a personal relationship, not a vicarious through the priesthood. And then finally, I see in those simple words about this new covenant that the new covenant is freeing, whereas the old one could be enslaving. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. For the Hebrew person, sinfulness in trying to stay on good terms with Christ, with God, I should say, was like a burden. <laughs> you know, like, and it cost you, right? Like, it cost you animals that you had, or it cost you money. It was tough because you were constantly indebted to God because you are always having to do things to show that you were repentant and wanted forgiveness. You were contrite. And so it's no small wonder, it's not hard to imagine that it felt to people like a burden. But the new covenant is freeing because sin has been dealt with once and for all in Jesus Christ. Some Christians haven't got that yet. <laughs> They're still going to the tabernacle in their minds and offering up penances and sacrifices and such for forgiveness. We are forgiven. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Yes, do you need to ask for forgiveness? Yes. But do you need to sort of somehow be a slave to your sin, be indebted uh, to God because of your sin, be in arrears all the time? Absolutely not. 
You're not in arrears. <laughs> you are free of that. And can you see how freeing that is compared to the old covenant, which didn't have an absolution as part of it, where you are absolved by Christ once you give your heart to Jesus Christ and ask for his forgiveness. Yeah, we're going to sin and we ask for forgiveness. But it's not living under a cloud of, that you can't get out from under at all. It is knowing that I am forgiven and being free to enjoy God. Not seeing God as sort of the great, you know, uh, bean counter in the sky who's keeping track of all your, your, your mishaps and then, you know, also making sure that you've dealt with each one of those specifically. That's not what Christ came to do. He wants you to enjoy God. He wants you to fall in love with God and to know that He has dealt with your sin. And therefore, you're not under that cloud, you're not burdened, you are free to, to enjoy Him. So those are the four things that I see that are different from the Old Covenant. One is internal, not external, unconditional, not conditional, personal, not vicarious, and free, not enslaving. Once again, I, I want to be very clear. When God established the Old Covenant, His intent was not that it would be a barrier between us and God. It would inevitably be that way, but it wasn't His intent that it would separate man from God. And in fact, we find in Scripture men and women who were known as friends of God, even though they were under the Old Covenant. And so I don't think the intent of God was to sort of make there a barrier, because I think that you could engage or be part of the Old Covenant and do all the routines and rituals, and yet you would never, you know, never... Get it perfectly right. You could never, as the words in this scripture, it, it never brought perfection like the new covenant does. But at the same time, if your heart was right, you could have a right relationship with God. There were righteous people in the old covenant, people that had good relationships with God, and they just obeyed the old covenant to the best they could. The difference between them and others, like the Pharisees, was that one was sincere in trying to do the things that they had to do to stay in right relationship with God, whereas the other were whitewashed tombs who basically did what had to be done, but their heart wasn't in it. Big difference. And so, in preaching a sermon like this, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm saying that, you know, God set up a system so that, you know, you, 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 couldn't, you couldn't have a close relationship with God. It's just, it, it was susceptible to being 
And that's a big difference. So let me just wrap up. In Hebrews 8, we see that very different covenant that Christ established. Christ didn't come to establish a new religion. <laughs> the religion of Christianity. When you think about it, you look at the old covenant, and you look at the new covenant, you look at the tabernacle, you look at churches. One could make a pretty good argument that nothing's really changed. There's still rites and rituals, there's practices, and you can still do church every day or every Sunday of your life and not be in relationship with Jesus Christ. So Christ did not come to establish that. He, he came to establish a religion. Russell closed close, close with this thought. The Jesus described in the Bible is scandalous. He's, he's not portrayed as a founder of world religion, but the challenger of all religions. He's subversive, anti-institutional, revolutionary. Now, when I say anti-institutional, I'm not suggesting that Jesus opposes all forms of organization, but that he opposes dependence on any one organization for our connection with God. Jesus came to give us relationship with him directly. Religion says we need to use the system and the processes and the procedures, the rituals, in order to get to God. And Jesus did away with that. Let's think about those six stone jars again. Was there anything really wrong with doing that? Well, I guess, you know, washing your hands before you went into a wedding feast to be ceremonially clean. It's not the worst thing. But Jesus came to give something far better. You don't have to wash your hands constantly to stay pure. We just sang it. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I don't have to keep washing my hands before I do this, that, and the other thing, this, that, and the other thing, because between point A and point B, I inevitably sin. I'm forgiven. Jesus takes us from holy water to wedding wine, from legalism to life, from religion to relationship. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, I thank you for your book we call Hebrews. I thank you, Lord, that it has a powerful meaning for people who were brought up Jews and through that culture and that tradition. But I also thank you that there are truths in it for us. Truths of why you came, what the new covenant is that we're a part of, what's its nature. And I thank you that it is far superior to the old in the sense that it makes us perfect. Not in and of ourselves, but we're perfect through you, through Christ, and in Christ. And I thank you for that. So Lord Jesus, help us to latch on to that freedom. Help us to watch out. To avoid the, the temptation to be religious. And to 
lean on religious practices instead of investing in a relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. Have a great day.